Turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. We'll be looking at uh, verses 4 to 7 this morning. I'm going to read from verse 1 down to verse 7 for context. Therefore, my brothers, loved and longed for, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to think the same way in the Lord. Indeed, I ask you also, genuine companion, help these women who have contended together alongside of me in the gospel, with also Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your considerate spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for the opportunity to gather and to be uh, confronted and challenged by your word. And especially in this uh, portion of scripture, some significant principles concerning the Christian life that can be uh, very convicting, challenging, but also hopeful and encouraging. So Lord, as we look at these verses, at this passage, at these principles, help us to understand, help us to remember, help us to apply them to our lives. And Lord, as I preach your word, I pray that you would strengthen me Work through me, guide me, and I pray that you would use me for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. There's a <clears throat> principle we know in the Christian life of joy. It's uh, one of the fruits of the Spirit, of this uh, joy, a uh, joy that is um, spiritual, that is, is not like the world's joy, although um, there's many similarities, but there's this principle and this concept in, uh, of joy. And uh, we even, in uh, our heritage, we have many songs about joy. It's in many of our hymns, especially during Christmas season. We hear uh, hymns about joy, repeat the sounding joy, um, joy to the world. Um, you've heard... Uh, Sayings concerning joy, uh, having joy in the Christian life means uh, Jesus first, others second, and yourself last. Uh, I, I believe in that. Um, there's all sorts of questions con or, or uh, principles and, uh, and sayings concerning joy in the Christian life. Even uh, it's interesting that uh, the first question in the Westminster Catechism confronts us, it says, uh, what is the chief end of man? Meaning the, our, our chief purpose, our chief end, our, our end goal, our end state, the reason for why we exist. And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This principle of joy, it, it's, it's interlinked, it, 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 it's interlinked with worship, but it's, it's also a part of the purpose for why we exist. And I like how John Piper had, um, he, he did a slight edit to that answer to the first question in the catechism, that what is the chief end of man? And he says to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And so joy is throughout the scriptures, it, it's, it's commanded, it's encouraged, it, it, it should be evident in our lives. 
but sadly, it's not always there. And as we come to this letter to Philippians and we consider uh, the purpose and the circumstances under which it was written, under which Paul wrote it, and the reason for which he wrote it. And I've said many times that one of the key themes in this whole letter is joy. A second one is fellowship. Some have said this is the letter of joy. And even Dr. Will Varner and other commentators said, in his commentary, he writes that rejoicing is a note that is heard repeatedly. We see, and I'd just like you to, to point this out to you, in uh, chapter 1 and, and uh, verse 3, he, he, he talks about thanking God in, in all his remembrance of the Philippians, always offering prayer with joy. In verse 25 of chapter 1, he, he says, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. In uh, verse 2 of chapter 2, he says, Fulfill my joy that you think the same way by maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, thinking on one purpose. In verses uh, 17 and 18 of chapter 2, he says, Uh, Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, saying, even if if I will be uh, martyred, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And then he calls them, and you also rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. And then down at the end of chapter 2, he says this in verse uh, 28, he says, speaking of Epaphroditus, he says, I have sent him all the more eagerly so that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less concerned. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy. And then here in in verse uh, 1 of chapter 3, this section, which which I've said as as we've been going through chapter 3 and even into chapter 4, it's one huge long section. He says this, he says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord, to write the same things again is no trouble to me and is a safeguard for you. And then once again, he, he comes to that same saying here in, in our passage for this morning. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And that's almost um, bookends or um, in, uh, as many have said, uh, it, we see this term especially referred to in the Psalms. This, this concept or this term of an inclusio. You see this a lot in the Psalms of where um, there's bookends to a psalm or a passage where um, the beginning and the end are the same. And I, I think Paul is doing the same thing here with 3.1 all the way down to 4.4. And then he goes on, he elaborates on this concept of joy. And it's not just here in this letter, but it's throughout um, the New Testament as well. Uh, This concept of of joy, and and even as a command, as verse 4 here in chapter 4 is a command, Paul is commanding the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord always. And then he repeats it. But James as well, and, and even as we think about this letter of Philippians and Paul's circumstances and the Philippians' circumstances and then his command to rejoice. There's other New Testament writers. James, in verse 2 of chapter 1, he says, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith brings about perseverance. He's saying, in the midst of trials... And even affliction, consider it all joy. Peter um, says a similar thing, writing to um, believers in the midst of persecution. In 1 Peter 4, he says this in verse 12. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree you are sharing the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that also, at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. 
We see this in, in the um, early church as well, this concept of rejoicing in Christ, of rejoicing in God, of uh, joy in the Christian life. And in Acts 5, this, is, this, this scene where um, the uh, apostles are, are, um, are, in a sense, uh, arrested by the... Uh, by the priests, and they're brought in, and they're, they're in a sense, uh, uh, beaten as well. Uh, in Acts 5 and, and verse 40, it, it, talks, it talks about Gamaliel releasing them. And then it says this, And after calling the apostles in and beating them, they commanded them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then release them. So they went on their way from the presence of the Sanhedrin rejoicing that they have been considered worthy to suffer shame for the name. They were just beaten. And now they go away rejoicing because they were beaten for preaching Christ. And then it goes on and, and they just you know, didn't even follow their threats. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. What they were just beaten for, and now they rejoice. And this is essentially they're following Christ as well, because Christ, uh, as we read in, in Hebrews 12, he says, Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He suffered. He uh, died. He uh, was crucified. With, with this attitude of the joy of redeeming a people for himself and for the Father. This joy that he would experience in heaven. This joy that, in a sense, uh, David himself speaks of in Psalm 1611. He says, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. And that's... That's the, the object, in a sense, the, the source of our joy is not in our circumstances or, or what happens in this life or even the response of living faithfully, but our, our, our joy is in heaven. It, it, it's in uh, Christ. It, it's where He is. It's because of what He has done on our behalf. It, it's because one day we will see Him and, and we will um, be in His presence where there is fullness of joy and because that is a reality for all of those who are in Christ we can have joy in this earthly life even though it does not turn out the way we would like it and so as we come to this passage and we see this command to rejoice in the Lord always again I will say rejoice we have to receive that we have to apply that. And, and, and more than that, Paul will go on and he'll give a, a, a few other exhortations, uh, a couple other commands, which are, are really uh, flowing from this main command of rejoicing in the Lord. It's, it's almost as if applications and, and then a final principle. But really, what I see here is four principles, four principles of Standing firm in the Lord, which what he says he begins chapter 4 with. He calls them to stand firm in the Lord. And part of that, um, part of their spiritual stability, of their Christian maturity, is rejoicing in the Lord always. And so here we will look at these verses with, in, in lines of uh, four principles. Four principles regarding spiritual stability and maturity in the Christian life. The first being this command in verse 4. The command to worship. Because that's what it's really all about. It's all about worship. As Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Joy is inseparably linked to worship. We were created to worship. We were created as worshipers and, and part of our worship, when we are truly worshiping, and worship itself, 
that is an old English word, worth skip. It, it means uh, to ascribe value or worth to something. And, and whatever you ascribe value or worth to, you think of what is most valuable to you in terms of either a possession or a relationship or an experience. Whatever is most valuable to you, um, along with that flows your affections and affections of joy. You rejoice in that naturally. And you see, uh, uh, affections don't lie. They don't lie. They, they, they show your, the true desires of your heart and the object of your worship. And we are to worship God and God alone. And, and as we worship God, and if we do so sincerely, we will rejoice in Him. There will be joy. There will be joy in our worship, in all the various aspects of our worship, whether it be prayer or scripture reading or service or evangelism or uh, singing or, or whatever acts of worship which the the New Testament uh, prescribes, there ought to be joy in that worship. There ought to be joy throughout our whole life and, and, and whatever circumstance we find ourselves in. And so as Paul gives this command to worship, to rejoice in the Lord, he also gives some parameters of the command. We, we not only see this command to worship, but we also see the parameters of the command. In the attitude of the command that we are to rejoice, we are to worship the Lord in joy, we are to go about our Christian lives rejoicing in the Lord, which is also the object of the command. We have in the parameters of this command, we have the attitude, we have the object, and then we have the time span. We are to worship the Lord with joy, we are to Worship Him and Him alone in the Lord as we are in the Lord. And He is the object of our joy, the object of our rejoicing. And then this time span of the command that He says, always, always, in spite of whatever circumstance you find yourself in, whether it's persecution, whether it's trials, whether it's sickness, it's, as you can tell by my voice, I'm still getting over the sickness I've had over the last week. So as I've been studying this passage all week long, I've been convicted and confronted with the fact that in my sickness, in my illness, in my uh, uh, less than um, uh, desirable health, that I should be rejoicing as I cough and sneeze and feel the aches I'm supposed to rejoice in the Lord and, and, and in the fact that he is sovereign over all things over every circumstance of my life and and he has appointed this time for my benefit and, and to see that he is enough and that he is guiding me through this time and uh, sanctifying me in the process one commentator he writes this he says that Few things are more fatal to real Christianity than the poisonous idea that joy in Jesus is optional, not essential. We can slip into this way of thinking when a vibrant personal relationship with Jesus, joyful devotion, chills to a religious allegiance, dutiful devotion to Jesus. No one can read Philippians rightly and regard one's duty to Jesus as essential but joy in Jesus as merely optional. That, that, that joy in the Christian life is, is sort of icing on the cake. Like if you have it, that's, that's great, but if you don't have it, then you still do your duty. And, and there are those times in which you don't feel like doing the things you ought to do. You don't feel like going to church. You don't feel like praying. You don't feel like reading your Bible. You don't feel like serving. And the answer is you still do it because it's the right thing to do. But then you also confess that you don't feel like doing it even as you do it. That you repent of your lack of joy. That your heart is not right. 
Because we're supposed to rejoice always. We're supposed to do all things with joy. And that's the rub. That's where this is so convicting, so confronting. Because we're not always joyful. And yes, there are different personalities where joy seems just more, um, I guess, uh, common or uh, natural to some personalities or just some people, their, their circumstances, you know, and, and, and God is sovereign over all our circumstances. And, and there are people that they have, you know, because of God's grace, they have a, a relatively easy and blessed life and others who don't. And then there's times and seasons where there's trial and blessing. But we're to rejoice always despite the, the uh, circumstances, despite our blessings or our trials. We're commanded to rejoice always. And, and then there's this sense, not, not only does Paul lay out the parameters of this command to worship, to rejoice in the Lord always, but he also lays out the significance of this command in the fact that he repeats it. It is worth repeating. Again, I will say rejoice. And this is, in a sense, the same thing he said in, in, in uh, verse 1 of chapter 3 when he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And then he goes on, he says, To write the same things again is no trouble to me. And it is a safeguard for you. That, that rejoicing in the Lord, uh, worshiping Him, finding all your hope, your peace, your comfort, your security in the Lord is a safeguard for you. It's a safeguard against all heresies, against all false teaching, against all temptations. That, that your joy and your hope is in the Lord. And, and that's the thing with, with temptations in the Christian life is temptations to sin and, and sin itself and idolatry itself, it has a promise that comes with it. No one, as John Piper says, no one sins out of duty. That, that, I, I must be rude or, or, you know, I must lie or, you know, I, I, I must... Uh, you know, lust or, or whatever the sin may be. No one sins out of duty. They sin because that sin or that temptation has a promise of joy, of fulfillment. That this substance, in terms of substance abuse, will give you joy. And surely, as with all sin, there is a temporary joy. There is a temporary pleasure because of our sinful flesh. Uh, sexual immorality has a temporary pleasure that comes with it. But then there is guilt and shame. And so their sin offers joy. But our joy is to be in the Lord. And we're to remind ourselves of that. We're to remind ourselves of that always, that, that only He can give us lasting joy and true fulfillment. And so we, we fight for that in our service to the Lord. And so we see the significance of this command in the fact that it is worth repeating, but it's also worth remembering. And third, it's worth ranking above all other commands. There's a sense when, when, when Jesus was, um, during his earthly ministry, there's this scene of uh, uh, the scribe coming up to him saying in Matthew 22, and it's, it's also in other Gospels, he says, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? He's, he's trying to figure out what's the most important thing to do. I can do that, and then I will be good. He's saying, he says to him, he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And part of that is rejoicing in the Lord. If you rejoice in the Lord, you will naturally love Him with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. It's all connected. It's in a sense saying the same thing. 
rejoicing in the Lord, loving Him. Because you rejoice over what you truly love. And then he goes on. He says, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang the whole law and the prophets. Which, in a sense, brings us to the second principle which Paul lays out here regarding spiritual stability and joy in the Christian life. And he's given us this command to worship. And then second, he gives us an external application of the command. There's, in a sense, a, a second command, but it's more along the lines of an application of this primary command to rejoice in the Lord. He says in verse 5, Let your considerate spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. He's saying, in a sense, if you're rejoicing in the Lord always, then the primary application of that is that you will let your considerate spirit be known to all men, or your, as some translations have it, reasonableness. And, and there's, there's different translations um, concerning this word here for considerate spirit. It, it, it's kind of in a sense, uh, uh, hard to translate. One, one commentator, he writes, uh, the term, this Greek term, often translated gentleness, is difficult to translate with its full connotation. Such words as gentle, yielding, kind, forbearing, and lenient are among the best English attempts. But no single word is adequate. Involved is a willingness to yield one's personal rights and to show consideration and gentleness to others. It is easy to display this quality towards some persons, but Paul commands it be shown towards all. So this external application of this command to rejoice in the Lord always, to, to worship Him, is that the overflow, the outflowing of our joy in the Lord would be in our interactions with others how we apply that how we respond to others in our general demeanor how we think about others that that because we love the lord our god with all our heart and soul and might we will in a sense love our neighbor as ourselves because we're rejoicing in the lord we will be considerate towards others we will be yielding we will be forbearing we will be gentle in our demeanor, and in our thoughts, and our attitudes toward them. And I want you to see this in a sense, uh, this is an outflowing of the gospel. Turn with me to Titus chapter 3. And this is a principle that um, is repeated over and over again in the New Testament, but I think Paul really fleshes it out here in Titus chapter 3, um, that because we have been born again, because we've been saved, because we are in the Lord, that should uh, drastically and significantly affect the way we treat other people. Titus 3 says this, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to be peaceable, Consider it, demonstrating all gentleness to all men. And then he gives the why. For we ourselves also were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, despicable, hating one another. But when the kindness and affection of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not by works which we did in righteousness, but according to His mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we would become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. In essence, is what he's saying is if, if you've been saved by the grace of God, then you ought to be a gracious person. You ought to recognize, and especially those who are not in the faith, of where they are, of their destiny, unless they repent and turn and 
trust in the Lord. And you ought to, in a sense, um, have pity. You ought to be considerate. You ought to be yielding. You ought to be forbearing because, because God was forbearing with us. He was yielding with us. He was gracious towards us. So then we are to be gracious towards them. If we rejoice in the Lord always, if we love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we'll, in a sense, align our wills with Him, and we will be gracious as He is gracious, and we will be gracious towards others. And so this external application of the command to worship, to rejoice in the Lord, it is fleshed out in our interactions with others, but also in our response to the Lord. In our response to his presence, as Paul says, the Lord is near. He says, let your considerate spirit be known to all men, all peoples everywhere, whoever they are, because the Lord is near. The Lord is near. It's our response to the Lord is we should, um, in a sense, as the Puritans said, uh, they would say, you need to practice the presence of of the Lord, which is a weird way of saying that. How can I practice the presence of the Lord? Like, like the Lord is omnipresent. He's everywhere. So, so how can I practice like what he's doing? Because he's doing it. I, I can't influence him, so to speak. But you practice the presence of the Lord by meditating upon it, that he is ever present. He's ever near. He's all around. There's nothing he doesn't know. He's with us. Always. And especially if we are in him, if we are believers, we are united with the Lord. But there's also a sense that this is, could also speak to his return. His, uh, this doctrine of his imminence. His imminent return. There's a sense that Paul gives this command, this application, and then he says, the Lord is near. Remember that he's with you, he's in you, but his return is imminent. He's coming back, and he's coming back soon. And we pray to that end, Lord, come quickly. But with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. And so as we rejoice in the Lord always, as we um, uh, worship Him in spirit and in truth with our heart, mind, and soul, with our affections, that should impact how we respond to other people, how we interact with other people. This application of this command in, in our relationship. But then third, there's, there's not only an internal application, uh, or an external, there's an internal as well. Paul gives this command, then he gives an external application, then an internal application. Verse 6, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. This internal application of rejoicing in the Lord, that if we're rejoicing in the Lord, and we're rejoicing always, not only should we uh, be gracious towards others, but we shouldn't be anxious about anything. We shouldn't worry. We shouldn't fear. Uh, there shouldn't be turmoil in our hearts. Uh, we, we should be, because we should be hoping in God and, and not in our circumstances. Our hope should be completely in God if we're rejoicing in God, not in our circumstances. And as we see this command, even uh, Jesus says this. As soon as you read verse 6 of chapter 4, you should think of Jesus' command in Matthew 6. Also, Luke writes about it in Luke 12. But Paul says, be anxious for nothing. Don't worry, don't fret, don't be fearful. It's the exact opposite of complaining. And, you know, he's probably going off of what Jesus commanded in his Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, if you haven't, 
And, and there's been times where I have memorized this passage <coughs> and then it's gone from my memory or I changed translations. Um, but nonetheless, I, I, this is one of those passages I go to over and over again. I've brought people to. I've used it for counsel. It's one of those primary passages for the Christian life in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 31 as, as, uh, as Jesus is teaching the people in his Sermon on the Mountain. He tells them, he says, do not worry. Talking about how God feeds the birds. He clothes you. He clothes the flowers of the field. And he says, do not worry then, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. It's meaning the nations, uh, meaning unbelievers. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And what Jesus is not saying, and what Paul is not saying, is that we don't need to plan, or we don't need to be wise or diligent or set goals. That's all commended throughout Scripture, especially in the Proverbs, of being diligent, of making plans, of being wise, of being discerning. But what Jesus is saying and what Paul is saying is that after we've made our plans and set our goals and, and have done our work and have been diligent or even in the midst of that, we are not to do so anxiously or fearfully or, or um, just racked with worry Be, because God is in control and he cares for us. More than the birds of the air. More than the, the flowers of the field. He feeds us. He clothes us. He calls us not to worry, but the, our primary um, uh, desire and, and uh, goal should be to seek His kingdom and His righteousness. And then there's this promise, and all these things will be added to you. In other words, if... If you're preoccupied with his kingdom, with his plans, with what he desires, then there's no reason why he would not support you in that effort, in that venture. You think about that. Even from an earthly perspective, if a servant of a king was just dutiful, honorable, faithful, all he wanted was the king's desire, wouldn't the king provide him with all the resources to bring that about? And that's what Jesus is saying. <coughs> Be preoccupied with me and, and, and what I desire and what I want to advance my kingdom. You know, call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall worship me, uh, uh, glorify me, seek my kingdom. I'll provide for your every need. And even I, I like what Luke adds to this same, um, what Luke uh, uh, draws out uh, um, in chapter 12 of Luke. He says, in the same uh, uh, teaching of Jesus not to worry, he says, <clears throat> he adds something which Jesus said, do not fear, little flock, for your father is well pleased to give you the kingdom. He will bring us into his kingdom. And he will bring about his kingdom. We will be his kingdom citizens. We will experience his kingdom one day here on earth. <clears throat> and so as we apply this command to rejoice in the Lord always, to worship him, <coughs> we are to apply that in our externally in our interactions with others, but internally as we, we struggle against and we fight against this, this temptation to worry and to be anxious that we hope in God and not in our circumstances. We trust that God is sovereign over everything and, and then we pray about those things, those concerns we have. 
We pray about them, all, all the concerns, all those things that we're tempted to fret and worry and be anxious about and be fearful about. We're to, when, when that concern comes up, when that temptation to fret or worry comes up, the first thing we are to do is to bring it to the Lord in prayer, to cast it upon God. We're, we're called to pray about everything here. As Paul says, but in everything by prayer and petition. These two words, which it's, it's, they're both words for prayer, but he has this general term for all prayer, and then he has a more specific term for petitions, requests, personal requests. And, and that these requests, these prayers, are to ma be made with this attitude of thanksgiving, to be thankful for everything. We are to hope in God, not our circumstances, and we, we, a primary application of that is that we trust God and we pray about everything. And then second, we, we trust in Him working and, and not in our own working. We trust in God's working, not in our own. That we, the, one of the first inclinations we, for us is when we're in the midst of a trial or a challenge, is to somehow try to problem solve and work it out ourselves through our own wisdom or our own resources or our own networking or our own abilities or tools or possessions. Rather than the first thing we should do is go to God in prayer and say, Lord, I, I have this problem and I'm tempted to worry about it. I'm tempted to be fearful about it. I'm tempted to be anxious about it. So help me through it. Help me not only to uh, do the right thing, to be wise, we bring our request, but to uh, approach it with the right attitude and to maintain this attitude of joy in all circumstances. We are to, as Peter says, to cast all of our cares on God. Casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Understand that God does care for you. As, he's, as Jesus said, he, he cares for even the, the, the birds and the flowers of the field. He, he feeds them. He clothes them. He cares for us. And, and when we're anxious, when we're worried, when we're fearful, it shows not only that we don't trust in that moment, that we're not trusting in God's power and His sovereignty over this circumstance, but we're also, in a sense, saying, God, you don't care for me. So I, I have to somehow work this out on my own. I have to somehow figure this out on my own. And so because of that, because I'm left all to myself, I'm going to be anxious and worried and fearful. I'm not going to trust you. Worry, anxiety, fear, it, it, it's really rooted in unbelief. In that moment, we're really not believing in God. We're not believing in His power. We're not believing in His character. We're not trusting in Him, and certainly we're not rejoicing in Him because we're anxious, we're fearful. So Paul calls the Philippians this main application, this internal application of our thoughts, our attitudes, our desires to be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God, to cast all of your cares on God, to continually give thanks, which is in, in essence the opposite of complaining. Giving thanks is the opposite of complaining, which anxiety, fear, worry, it's always coupled with a complaining, a grumbling. Even if it's not expressed, it's a complaining, grumbling spirit. It's all interconnected. Also with discontentment. There's a similar command Paul gives to the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16, as he tells them, and he, he fires off these commands. And you can turn there and see this because it's a, it's a shorter passage. But 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, it says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. 
And if we don't get it here in Philippians 4 as a command, is in successive commands and applications to rejoice in the Lord always, and that is repeated, we definitely see it here in 1 Thessalonians 5 where Paul says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will. It's God's will for you. In Christ, if you're in Christ, you ought to rejoice always. You ought to pray without ceasing, be in constant communication with God, and give thanks always. Always give thanks. In a sense, as he says to here, let your request be made known to God. And it's almost as if, you know, he says that, and as if, you know, we're thinking, well, you know, doesn't God already know it? It's like, yeah, yeah, even before we uh, speak a word, as David says in, in Psalm 139, before a word is on my tongue, you know it all together, Lord. But we're still commanded to pray and to pour out our requests before God, to pour out our hearts before him, to uh, cast our cares upon him, to let our requests be made known to him because he cares for us. So in this passage, we have four principles Four principles that are, are, um, are linked and, and just uh, so significant in terms of our Christian living and our spiritual stability. We have this command to worship the Lord, to rejoice in the Lord always. We have an external application of the command to let our considerate spirit or reasonableness or gentleness be known to all men. An internal application of the command, not to be anxious or worry or fearful over anything. And then we have this fourth and final principle, the results of faith and obedience to the command and to these applications. Verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So what he's saying is, if you follow what I'm saying. If you're rejoicing in the Lord, um, if you're letting your considerate spirit be known to all men, if you're being anxious for nothing and praying uh, in everything with thanksgiving, then you will experience this peace of God. You will experience this peace of God which surpasses all comprehension. This peace of God in spite of earthly circumstances. This peace of God which is unlike the world's peace. Unlike what the, the world understands as peace. And as we think of peace, usually we, we also think of um, kind of the opposite. A lot of times we try to understand a, a term or concept or a principle by thinking of the opposite. Sometimes we think of peace as the opposite of war or hostility or strife, and certainly that's true. But what the Bible says about peace, and certainly the Hebrew term for peace, shalom, is more than that. It's prosperity. It's goodness. It's God's favor. And it's unlike what the world thinks about peace. It's not just a neutral it's, it's goodness. Jesus speaks about this as he uh, gives his, uh, some lasting words, uh, some, some last words to his uh, disciples in, during the Last Supper in John chapter 4. He says, or John chapter 14, he says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you, do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Saying, I, I give you my peace, this supernatural peace. He, he's not promising that they, they won't have challenges or trials or, or even be martyred. He, he even says that they will be um, martyred in a sense. They, they will fee, uh, face affliction and, and, and persecution. But he promises them peace. The, the peace that was uh, established, that was uh, created at the cross. The, the, this peace of eternal life. This peace of his presence. This peace of the fact that he is in control. He is sovereign and that he cares for them. This peace which is 
incomprehensible to unbelievers. You, you ought to have such a peace about you that when you're in the midst of a trial or, or uh, affliction, that the unbelieving world, uh, the people around you that aren't believers, uh, family, friends, co-workers, should be like, wow, like you're going through that. Uh, people are treating you that way. And I, I, I just can't imagine, like you're just so peaceful. You're calm. You're contented. Like it doesn't matter. And, and that's an opportunity uh, to proclaim the gospel. To say, well, well, my peace is not found in the things of this world, but in, in the God who is, has created the whole world and is sovereign over the world and, and directs its affairs and is, is with me and guiding me and he cares for me. So, so I have a peace that is supernatural. And, and it's a result of trusting him, of obeying him, of rejoicing in him. The main result of obeying these commands, of rejoicing in the Lord always, of, of being gentle and considerate and re reasonable with others, of not being anxious, is that we will experience the peace of God. But second, our hearts and minds will be guarded. Your heart and your mind will be guarded. It, it will be guarded by this peace of God. It will be guarded from fear. It will be guarded from anxiety and worry. It will be guarded from doubt and unbelief. The, these attitudes which are so prevalent in our society, in our culture, and, and just in people in general. I mean, there's so many statistics nowadays considering, uh, uh, concerning uh, mental health and uh, depression and anxiety medications. And I'm not saying that you're in sin if you have some medication. Sometimes uh, there's physical issues and sometimes uh, uh, anxiety is such that you need medication for a time, but that's ultimately not going to fix it. It's not a long-term cure. The long-term cure is, is what you set your heart upon, what you fix your mind upon. Is it fixed upon the circumstances of this life, which, which change from day to day and hour to hour? Or is it fixed on the Lord, who is eternal and sovereign and unchangeable, and that He cares for you? And He, he cares for you so much that He sent His Son to die for you. If you rejoice in him, if you rejoice in the Lord and what He has done and what He has promised, then there shouldn't be, you shouldn't be uh, characterized by anxiety or worry or fear. You should experience the peace of God. Your heart and mind should be guarded from fear, from anxiety and worry, from doubt and unbelief. I like what one commentator writes concerning um, this last verse and this last point of your hearts and your minds being guarded. He says this. He says, Paul uses a military metaphor in describing the activity of God's peace, which is almost personified. He says, will guard is better expressed in the military language of will keep guard over. The Philippians living in a garrison town would be familiar with the sight of the Roman sentry maintaining his watch. Likewise, comments the apostle, God's peace will garrison and protect your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So long as you're rejoicing in him always, so long as you, that, that joy is seen in the way you interact with others, that joy is seen in, in the way you respond to the circumstances of life and in, in, uh, in the fact that you're not anxious or worried that there is this guard of the peace of God. And as we go through these verses, which just confront us, that the fact that, I mean, I don't know anybody. And I've never, never met anybody who rejoices in the Lord always, consistently, continually. This is a constant battle, or as some say, our fight for joy. To rejoice in the Lord. 
it's a constant battle and it's convicting. But in light of this passage and all these commands that confront us, in our fears, our worries, our anxieties, our, the object of our joy, the question for all of us here this morning is, do I experience this peace of God which surpasses all comprehension or all understanding? Have I ever experienced it? In spite of, of just significant trials or afflictions or health issues or relationship issues or financial issues, have I experienced this peace of God which surpasses all understanding? And if not, it's probably because you're not obeying the previous commands that would bring about that peace. But more importantly, it may be because you do not have peace with God to begin with. As one commentator writes, the peace of God, which replaces anxiety in the life of the prayerful believer, is impossible to experience unless one already is at peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And he references Romans 5.1, this this. Uh, this verse, this section of Paul's letter to the Romans where he is explaining justification by faith alone. That we, uh, sinful man, can, uh, can appear before a righteous, holy, omnipotent God, can be justified before him only by faith in him and by faith in Jesus Christ that he has... Uh, satisfied the requirements of God's holiness and paid the punishment for our sins. Romans 5.1, he says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, by faith in Christ, in Christ alone, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And once again, this idea of shalom, of not just the end of the hostilities, because we're all born sinners, and, and, and as sinners, born enemies of God. As we are saved, we become friends of God, and we experience this peace of God. We have peace with God, not through our works, not through our service, not through our knowledge, but through our Lord Jesus Christ, through His works, through His perfect life through his perfect death, his perfect sacrifice. And Paul goes on, he says, through whom also we have attained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we boast, or as many uh, uh, translations say, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That, that is the foundation for our joy, for our rejoicing, is that, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And if we have peace with God, we should rejoice always and we should experience the peace of God. It should guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And so as we look at these verses and we consider our own lives, we consider these commands... We should consider the fact that if we are rejoicing in the Lord always, if you rejoice in the Lord always, you will let your considerate spirit be known to all men. You will live as if the Lord is near because he will be near with you. And therefore, you will be anxious for nothing, but will let your request be made known to God through prayer and petition with thanksgiving. And the result will be that the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus because you're rejoicing in Him always and not your circumstances, nor your own wisdom, nor your own possessions, but in Christ Jesus always and above everything else. As I've said before, and many have said before, and many will continue to say that Christianity is all about Christ. It's all about Him, His person, His works, His glory. And we are to glory in Him. We are to rejoice in Him. We are to serve Him. And if we do so, we ought not be anxious for anything. There ought to be a peace that characterizes us. And we ought to show grace to others as He has displayed His uh, divine and immense eternal grace to us. 
Heavenly Father, you know that we are prone to worry. We are prone to be fearful. We are prone to be anxious. I dare say that there's not one of us in this room that doesn't struggle from time to time with anxiety or fear or worry or doubt. And it's all because we, we really just want to be in control. We want to have control. Or, or know that everything will work out according to our plans. That, that we will be secure. That we will be comfortable. For our comfort, our security, our hope is, is only in you. Who hold the universe in your hand. You've decreed all things. You work all things according to good to those who uh, uh, love you and are called according to your purpose. And you call us to trust in you, to rest in you, to hope in you, and to rejoice in you. So help us, Lord, to do that. Remind us of who you are and of what you've done and of what you've promised. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.